Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. Hello, I'm Professor Eileen Baldry, and you're about to listen to a specially curated episode of the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast. Today, I'm in conversation with Professor Jackie Leach-Scully to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the well-being of women with disability. Professor Leach Scully is an internationally recognised bioethicist specialising in disability and feminist bioethics. She's Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Disability Innovation Institute at the University of New South Wales. Thank you for joining me, Jackie. Let's first set the scene and the context for our exploration of the impact of COVID-19 on women with disability. Are there broad similarities as well as differences in the impact of COVID-19 on women with disability compared with women or men without disability? And here I'm thinking of not just the illness itself, but all the associated aspects of the measures societies are taking to prevent COVID's spread. Thank you, Eileen. Um, women and, and men with and without disability are the same biological species. So the biological effects of the virus are broadly the same in, in both. So women with disability, like anyone else, are going to be vulnerable to catching the virus, uh, with a small percentage of them becoming seriously ill. And women with disability are going to be affected by the social or physical distancing that we're performing and by the other impacts of pandemic restrictions that affect physical and mental well-being. Um, things like the effects of isolation and quarantine, uh, the loss of job and income, changes in their domestic circumstances, changes in relationships and so on. So at one level, you could say that the, that the effects of COVID-19 across society are very similar. It's become clear to all of us, I think, over the last weeks and months that uh, though it might be a case of, you know, we're all in the same boat, uh, there are some people who are nearer the leakier end of the boat than others are. Looking at women with disabilities as a group, there are ways in which both gender and disability play a role in shaping the kind of impact that COVID-19 is going to have on them. Well, following up um, on that uh, last comment, Jackie, what are the aspects of the pandemic's impact on women with disability where gender specifically makes a crucial difference? And if so, what are they? Okay, we, we know from the available evidence already that it does look like women appear significantly less likely to progress to the severer form of the disease. That is, they're just as likely as men are to catch it, but less frequently do they go on to get a severe form of pneumonia or anything like that. Uh, the reasons that are not entirely clear, but it appears to be differences due to biological sex that uh, there are known to be differences in women's immune systems versus men's immune systems, and that might be playing a role here. There might also be differences in the incidence of particular diseases, the kind of underlying disease conditions that affect how severe COVID is. So 
conditions like hypertension, cardiovascular disorders and so on tend to make COVID-19 worse and they tend to occur much more frequently in men than in women. So that might be playing a role here. And then there are also gender related behaviours. So in many countries, uh, smoking is much more common than among women and smoking affects the respiratory system and that's likely to exacerbate the effect of the uh, disease as well. So all of those might be biological reasons why women respond differently. Equally important, possibly more important in terms of well-being though, there were differences in the, in the social and economic impacts uh, on women of the pandemic itself and also of the responses to the pandemic and it's often quite difficult to disentangle those two things. So women with disability as women are just more likely to be living in economic precarity. They're less likely to be employed, they're more likely if they are employed to be lower paid, more likely to be working part-time in the kind of jobs that are currently not considered uh, essential, so working in the service industries, working in bars and restaurants and, and things like that. Women are more likely to have carer responsibilities or at least to be carrying the bulk of those responsibilities. So for care of children, care for older people, care for people with disabilities. Under pandemic restrictions then, women and women with disabilities may be trying to work from home while also homeschooling. Uh, they may also be trying to support older family members or people with disabilities who may be not in the home but outside. Uh, while trying to cope themselves with social distancing and arrange their lives around that and so on. I think probably all of us are also aware that carer responsibilities for women also tend to include the bulk of the emotional labour, not just the physical care, but the, the, you know, the TLC for people's emotions and feelings and fears and so on. And so it often falls to women to do the emotional support of other people, whether that's in the workplace um, or people who are at home who are anxious and frightened and overburdened. And all this at a time when they themselves, women and women with disabilities, are anxious and frightened and overburdened too. All of those things have really major impacts on people's physical health, on their mental health, on their mental resilience um, too. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jackie. So, um, you know, you've painted a really interesting picture where uh, there are some things that make men um, more vulnerable, perhaps to the worst aspects of COVID-19, medically wise or health wise. But, um, but some of the impacts on women, are perhaps more socially um, in their everyday lives um, and, and uh, so on, um, sound to be uh, considerable and potentially um, higher impact than on men. And so if we add, we, you, we haven't specifically talked about the intersection between uh, disability and gender. And so when you add disability into the, the things that you've just talked about, um, are there things that um, make a difference around disability and gender, that intersection, in this COVID-19 context? Yeah, disability complicates matters a lot uh, for both men and women. 
in particular because when you start talking about disability, um, it's very easy to talk about it as, as if it was a unitary thing. But of course, you're talking about a huge diversity of different kinds and different severities of impairments. So sensory uh, and mobility impairments of different degrees of different kinds, um, chronic illnesses that have uh, disable, disabling effects, uh, intellectual disabilities, neurodiversity, uh, mental illness, all of those sorts of things um, have different uh, manifestations and will interact with the, the effects of the pandemic and the pandemic restrictions in different ways. For most people with disability, I think we would feel that under the best of circumstances, um, disability can be managed. Uh, it's a predicament that can be managed in ways that make life, ensure that life is a good life and it's a flourishing life and so on. Um, but it can make life extra tricky. And when you have an additional factor like uh, a pandemic, which is hardly a mild factor, um, then things can be trickier. And these are not the best of circumstances in which you're trying to manage things which, uh, under the normal life, make things harder. So if you think right back to the start of the pandemic, um, one issue there was straightforwardly access to basic information uh, about what was happening and what were the measures that one could take to protect oneself and one's family. It was uh, notorious actually at the time that many of the government announcements both, uh, both in Australia and in other countries uh, at national and state level, those announcements were just not accessible to people with hearing impairment, for example. So they were on television, they were not captioned, there were no sign language interpreters visible. Um, that has been, at least in Australia, rectified to a great extent, but sometimes it's quite sporadic too, and you still see really important announcements being made uh, without any apparent effort to include people with hearing impairment. In, at least in the early days, a lot of the recommendations about hygiene, things like you know, hand washing, about distancing, social distancing and so on, were being produced in language that was just too complex for people with intellectual disabilities to take on board and to be able to practice consistently. So there was a real issue there about um, the accessibility of the measures and about imagination around what those measures might actually mean in practice. So being told not to touch things when you're outside or not to touch other people was pretty difficult for people who are blind or with visual impairments or people who are blind and deaf and who communicate via touch with other people. It doesn't make things impossible for them, but a level of imagination about working around those um, particular constraints was really lacking right at the start of the pandemic. Now one of the key issues that's arisen since is about access of people with disabilities to health care and especially to what we call critical care which is when you're in hospital you're severely ill you need to go into intensive care and perhaps uh, in, particularly in the case of Covid you might need artificial ventilation if your breathing is very poor. What we've seen in a lot of European countries, and at least at the moment, speaking toward the end of April, um, it looks as if we might be suffering quite as severely in Australia as some other countries have done. Um, but we shouldn't get too complacent. And we've seen in a lot of European countries and in the US, health systems being overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of sick people needing care, especially intensive care, to the extent that that care 
has had to be rationed. Not an ideal situation, but an inevitable one under those pressures. And that means that decisions have to be made about who actually gets access to intensive care units or to ventilators. And concerns were raised about the guidance that was being provided to people making these triage decisions. Uh, the guidance is sometimes stated or at least implied that people above a certain age or people with disabilities shouldn't receive intensive care or sometimes it was phrased as they are not good candidates for intensive care. Um, I tend to believe, I may be a natural optimist here, but I tend to believe that that's not so much about overt hostility towards people with disabilities, but just that people are making easy uh, and wrong assumptions about things like the fact that people with a disability, any disability, might necessarily be in worse health than somebody without a disability, or even might be of less value in some sense to society than somebody without a disability. Now, potentially, this could affect women with disabilities more than men if, for example, there's an assumption that a man is more likely to be the family breadwinner or something like that. And you have a situation if you have a man with a disability and a woman with a disability, both needing a ventilator, only one ventilator available, both equally sick. Those kind of um, non-clinical considerations might come into it. They shouldn't do. And pretty much all the triage guidance that I have seen makes it clear that it should be just clinical outcome that matters here and no sort of social or value to society or assumptions about quality of life, for example, coming into it. Now, in most cases, uh, particularly Australia, I'm glad to say that those sorts of concerns that were raised by people with disability and their organisations about what these triage guidelines were saying, those concerns have been responded to and there have been modifications to guidelines and an emphasis that um, the kind of embedded sexism and disabilism that might not be sort of stated in a guideline like don't treat women, that's not going to be there people's unconscious assumptions that are brought into their interpretation of those guidelines need to be addressed as well. So effectively, the guidelines and so on need to say explicitly, these things must not be taken into consideration. So that's just one example. Um, another would be uh, the way that people have been told to do social distancing, physical distancing, uh, or keep themselves in self-isolation to keep themselves safe. But many people with disabilities are just not able to do that. They are dependent on carers, sometimes multiple carers. Um, they may be family members, but they may also be professional carers who come into their home from the outside on a daily basis to support their lives in various ways. And it's estimated that there are about one and a half million Australians who every day have some kind of external support person coming in to help them with their activities of daily life. So it's just not possible for someone who needs a carer to help them move or eat or drink or go to the toilet, etc., to keep themselves safe by excluding people from their homes, you know, however, however much they might want to do that. That's also more likely to affect women because women are statistically less likely to have a family member like a spouse as a carer. It's more likely to be a woman who's a carer for other family members. 
And that's an aspect of the lives of people with disabilities that until very recently have been really neglected by, by government. And that's left many women with disabilities in some really vulnerable situations. Uh, one final thing, I guess, is that it shouldn't be forgotten that we're beginning to see coming out of uh, data from many countries that a very large proportion of COVID-related infections and deaths are due to are happening in care homes, residential care homes for older people or disabled people. And that's emphasising the increased risks that there are in those situations of collective or group living for an infection to just spread like wildfire if there is one person who comes in carrying the infection. We know that it's around 15,000 Australians who are living uh, in some kind of group or collective setting because of disability. So the risks there are both for the residents, people with disabilities, women with disabilities, but also the staff who are exposed to infections as well. And again, we should remember that the majority of the staff in the caring sector, the caring industry, are women. It's a heavily gender-biased profession. So you can see that there's a variety of, of complex ways in which the intersection of being a woman and being a dis, uh, disabled uh, influences the experience, the whole experience of the pandemic and the constraints. And that's not even beginning to think about other factors like poverty uh, or indigeneity. So as we know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people have a disproportionately high incidence of disabling conditions as well. So that's going to be impacting on them uh, additionally. Jackie, the, um, you know, these are almost uh, kind of overwhelming um, considerations. And, and I think it's something that most people may not um, think about uh, people who themselves don't have disability or don't have a family member with disability. Um, and so this sort of brings uh, to the fore questions about what can we do? How can we make this better? So we've explored how women with disabilities experience of the pandemic are similar, but also different to women and men without disability. And we've also looked in particular at some of the key ways in which women with disability might be at greater risk of negative impacts than others uh, due to the intersection of gender and disability. And, and so do you have any suggestions for positive steps that um, uh, we as a society, that our, our inst government institutions, our NGOs and any of us can take to offset these impacts? You're right, it's, it's one thing to be able to sort of point to the problems and wring our hands and say that's dreadful, uh, but we need to be able to think about how to make things better. And I think there are some top level and also very straightforward individual level steps that people can take. It has been very good to see disabled people's organisations, NGOs, advocacy organisations across Australia, across the world as well, coming together to raise those issues and convey concerns. And because of modern communication technologies that are able to happen very, very rapidly. That's really good. I think it's as a result of concerted efforts like that that governments have been able to respond. So, for example, last week, the Australian government produced its management and operational um, guide for um, people with disabilities in um, in, in situation of, of COVID. Um, 
we all know operational plans are great and they look good on paper. Uh, they need to be implemented. So there continues to be a need for everyone to be pushing to ensure that those measures get implemented uh, at the right level. Um, on a more individual level, I think people can just try to be more aware of the situation of people and women with disability. It shouldn't always be um, deaf people, for example, who have to point out that there isn't captioning and there isn't a sign language interpreter because it just takes a little bit of a exercise of imagination and um, awareness for everybody to notice that that's happening. Um, for example, within UNFW, uh, we're all working online now, pretty much. We're working from home. Um, I think UNSW as, uh, as an institution has really taken on board accessibility in everyday life prior to the pandemic. Um, I think we now need to, working remotely to be uh, taking into account some issues that we haven't had to do before, trying to ensure that we're sensitive to the fact that working from home with a disability uh, can make raise issues of accessibility uh, that weren't there previously. And that's compounded when uh, you're a woman working from home with all those things that we talked about earlier, kind those kinds of responsibilities. Um, maybe take those sorts of things into consideration when we're looking at our, our own lives and our, our own productivity and our colleagues' productivity in the sense of the general well-being in the UNSW community. Now, I've had a couple of, of my colleagues with disabilities say to me, I feel really bad. Um, I'm, not, I'm just not being productive enough. I'm not achieving enough at the moment. And I'm trying to say to them, you know, look, you're alive, uh, you're breathing, you're turning up online for work. That's about as much as we can expect at the moment. I mean, that's a, a really... Um important uh, consideration uh, for people with disability as well for others but very particularly for people with disability and for women with disability who have so many um, potentially so many responsibilities um, if they're at home but also just in general um, and I really like uh, that um, sense of uh, this is uh, we're doing the best we can and um, and it's not the right thing at the moment to feel guilty. Uh, it's the right thing at the moment to, uh, for people without disability to be aware of what some of the issues are that uh, we need to be taking cognizance of, but also for people with disability and particularly women with disability um, to, to know that they are doing the best they can in, in very difficult circumstances. So thank you so much, Jackie, for joining me in our Women's Wellbeing Academy discussion of the impact of COVID-19 on the health and well-being of women with disability. And, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. For more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity and Inclusion website.